0: Hello all and the warmest of welcomes at these warmest of times to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a regular slice of often unfamiliar, shocking or seemingly unreal true crime that I've scoured the darkest recesses of the UK and Ireland to discover and to bring to you. Doing so is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. My beloved true crime Enthusi Cat, is here with me as he always is. He is flat out now superman in his little bed right by the side of me. And completing us are yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that the show is for. It doesn't happen without you. It's as simple as that. It is as amazing as it always is having you joining us. I can't thank you enough for it. And I hope that as you have, then it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe and all well. So catching up with myself here, big thanks go out to both my returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs this time around to new friends Anna Morris, Michelle Edwards, Sarah Louise, Craig Danson, Susan Farrell, Liz Totty, William Tower, Colleen Harrigan-Masonholder, Hannah Ord, Andy Hughes, Matthew Hewitt, Lisa Fitz, Paul Winkup, Gary Cooper and Martin Ward, plus Simon Lamb and Laurie Bowden-Edge who have opted to annually support the show. Apologies if I mispronounced anybody's name there. It is amazing of you to do everyone. Thank you so much and I hope that you've managed to make a start of ploughing through some of the plethora of bonus tales that being a Patreon supporter brings for you. I'm talking from tales as bizarre as The Strange Tale of Hellish Nell, and you deserve a medal for that, to the utter horror of wicked beyond belief and an offering to the angels, right through to the investigations that are drawn out over years, such as the latest tale that's out there, The Slowly Turning Wheels of Justice. There is a right mixed bag there for your listening. Now, these are just some of what are on offer. There are rooks more, and you can be hearing these and more for less a month than shares in rack are probably worth now. What an absolute load of bollocks that is as well, isn't it? Simply by heading over to Patreon and seeking out the show there, it's got the same logo and everything, but always remember that podcast suffix to find it. Or you don't even have to do that, because the link that's always in the episode show notes will take you right to it, And you can be on it quicker than the governor of Wandsworth, Nick, very recently thinking, shit, I better get job hunting. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, and next time too as it happens, for there was so much to this tale that to do it justice, it's become a two-part one. I bring a tale that I've long wanted to, for it's another case that's fairly local to me. Indeed, I have several friends still living in the town that the offence I'm about to discuss takes place, the North East Wales town of Flint. Notable about Flint is that it's where musician Paul Draper, the former frontman of the band Manson, former Wales international and Liverpool FC footballer, and coincidentally, the club's all-time leading goalscorer, Ian Rush, and Great Britain Olympic gold medallist, Jay Jones, it's where they hail from. It has the random and unique sculpture of a massive human foot at the town's railway station. God only knows why. And because, as I said, I have some friends who live there, I happen to know through some of their anecdotes that it contains characters with colourful names such as Firehead, Shaky, and Glyn the Pisshead. My favourite, Glyn the Pisshead. I also visited Flint while researching this episode. And as I do when I managed to get on location with the show, I took some videos referring to places that you'll hear mentioned throughout the tale. As it's a two-part episode, this one, I shall save my own thoughts and feedback concerning the case, largely until the conclusion of the second part of it. Now I also must add that I'm indebted, because I got to speak in-depth whilst I was researching it, to a police officer who has extensive knowledge of the case I've selected this time around and who's provided several filling-in bits here for me. Absolutely so grateful. The case in question is one that may be familiar to some, for it has been covered by a couple of other shows, and one that deals with the savage killing of a young girl on a winter's night back in January 1976. It was a crime that shocked and instilled fear within the area back at the time, albeit one that was resolved, if not completely satisfactorily, than was fairly quickly. Or, so it seemed at the time. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving a child, and including descriptions of a sexual nature that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind... Please join the true crime enthusiast for the first of a two part tale that I've entitled The 40 Year Secret. From the moment she was born on the 9th of June 1960, Janet Cummins was the whole world to her mother and father, nurse Eileen and steelworker Ted Cummins. Indeed, more than one person has said that she was the light of their lives the first child of the couple who'd only married the previous year after ted had left the army in 1957 janet was indeed to be their only child and as she grew into part of the loving caring and hard-working family that the cummins were and into their home number 28 king edward drive in the northeast wales town of flint It's fair to say that Ted and Eileen kept their daughter very much wrapped up in cotton wool. As she grew into a young woman in the early 1970s, attending Flint High School, Janet was described as being a loving, slightly timid and shy, but still fun to be with girl. But one who, and perhaps this stems from her being their only child, and the cotton wool she was described as being wrapped in by them, but one who still remained childlike in many ways. For example at age 15 when she was in her fifth year of secondary school education and when other girls of her age would be getting up to all sorts as you do when you're a youngster Janet would still play with dolls and acted generally younger than her age showing little to no interest in boys. Eileen said back in January 1976 We were very protective with her. She acted a lot younger than her age and a lot of her friends were younger than her. That January, the lives of Eileen and Ted Cummins had changed forever. Now I've just referred to Janet as somewhat childlike, but this was only part of her personality. In many ways she could be like every other teenage girl, as the events of the winter evening of Wednesday the seventh of January nineteen seventy six were to show. Late that afternoon, after returning home from school, and after having tea, 15-year-old Janet had asked her mother Eileen if she could go swimming with some of her friends that evening to the leisure centre in the town. But taking a look at Janet, and thinking her to look a little pale drawn, Eileen had said no, but had acquiesced that she could the following evening. Now Janet reportedly went off and had a little sulk at this disapproval. Storming off and making a point of slamming the door to her bedroom. However, not long after 7pm, Janet wrote a short note to her mother, something she was in the habit of doing, which read, Mum, can't I go to the baths now till half eight, please? I've got nothing to do. And then, dressed in a shirt, brown jumper, navy blue jeans, and a dark coloured Mac, Janet slipped out of the bungalow's back door, unnoticed by her parents, leaving them the note to say she would be back home by half past eight. Now Janet indeed headed down to the leisure centre and met with her friend Julie Davis there at 7:30 p.m., although she told Julie that she'd only come to pass on the message that she could go swimming the following evening instead and was then heading immediately home. However, And there is some confusion about the reasons for this, and indeed, Janet's movements in total that evening. But Janet did not head immediately home after leaving Julie, and nor was she back there by 8.30pm. Exactly where she was for the next 40 minutes is unclear, but from wherever she was, she could have by that time indeed been heading home, as a boy who knew Janet from school, Nigel Aycott, saw her at 8.10pm in Coydon Road, which is an adjacent road to her own street, talking to two older boys. Nigel had set off that night from his parents' house to go to his girlfriend's house in Northup Road, and when the pair then walked back into Coydon Road, Nigel described years later how he heard loud voices and saw Janet standing on the opposite side of Coydon Road with two males, whom he didn't recognise. In a statement at the time, he described a thin, fair-haired boy with curly hair, worn just over his collar, and a taller, older-looking boy, both of whom he judged to be older than him, around 17 years of age. Nigel recalled that because he thought it was odd that Janet was with two men, as he put them, he made a point of making eye contact with her, though he'd heard laughter coming from the group and claimed it was nothing untoward she didn't seem to be in distress at that point however Nigel Aycott had added in his statement that as he walked across the road in the darkness he thought he saw another shadowy figure stood by nearby trees though he hadn't paid too much attention and he and his girlfriend had carried on their way five or ten minutes after this sighting Janet reportedly visited a neighbour's house back on her own home street of King Edward Drive further up past her house though who this neighbour was and what Janet claimed the purpose of the visit at that time of night was was not reported and then there's somewhat of a gap in her movements for an hour or so before she was again reportedly seen in Albert Avenue a few streets away from her home at 9.30pm walking towards the coast road now, as to whether this certainly was Janet is unclear, and what she'd be doing there is also. Her grandmother lived at the time in Albert Avenue, but there was no evidence to suggest that Janet was heading to visit her here. If it was Janet, then this hour or so is another unexplained gap in her movements. By long before that time, however, Eileen Cummins had been out searching for her daughter, more vexed than concerned at the time about janet disobeying her and was shortly joined in the search by ted the two parents roamed the streets of flint looking for janet their anger increasingly turning to worry and then fear and by 11 p.m that evening ted cummins had done what must be the unimaginable he'd reported his daughter as missing to north wales police it was a report that was taken very seriously. It was very quickly established that this wasn't a runaway from an unhappy home, plus Janet had left a note saying she would be back shortly, as was accustomed to, and had taken no other clothing or possessions with her. And so, beginning at first light, large-scale searches for Janet were undertaken across the Flint area, expanding outwards, with an outlook to discovering the girl in a positive conclusion. The officers worked privately with the unsettling but very real thought that every minute janet was missing was a minute less likely that she would be found safe and well and the very real possibility that she could have been abducted had been bundled into a car and may now be miles from the north wales area i spoke to a friend of mine in work who is flint born and bred and he still lives there and he vividly recalls the unforgettable sight of scores of uniformed officers out undertaking fingertip searches, as well as the house-to-house inquiries going on over the next few days. However, the searches were sadly to no avail. Four days after she went missing, at about 11.20am on Sunday January the 11th, Three girls with a dog who were playing hide-and-seek on the Gwyneth Primary School playing fields near Pencock Hill, only a couple of hundred yards away from Janet's home, got the shock of their lives when one went to hide in a small thicket nearby and discovered Janet's lifeless body covered by snapped-off tree branches. Now, this is incredibly close to Janet's home. As I said, I visited the scene whilst researching and have walked the distance from her home to where her body was discovered, which I've filmed for you to see, and I was struck immediately as to why she wasn't discovered before the passage of four days, either by searching police or a desperate and worried family, although I guess it just must be the most tragic of circumstances. The three terrified girls immediately ran and raised the alarm to the first adult they came across reportedly the then caretaker of Gwyneth Primary School, who in turn contacted police, and only minutes after the girl's discovery, the area had been sealed off, and a murder investigation, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Eric Evans, had begun, and who arrived to take in the tragic scene. Janet lay flat on her back, her arms extended up around her head, and was found still clothed. Although her knickers and both of her shoes were found to be missing, and the waistband button and the zip of her jeans were undone. The positioning of her clothing, her undershirt, cardigan, and coat had been rucked up, plus the presence of twigs and minute foliage on her clothing, suggested as though her body had been dragged along the ground by her feet to where she was found, meaning she'd been attacked elsewhere and then concealed there. Her clothing was also wet. Indicating she'd lain there for several days, most likely the majority of time she'd been missing, and when her clothing was examined by biologist Dr. Anthony Peabody, were found to be mud-stained. Samples of which, when examined, indicated that at least part of the attack took place at the town's Gorseth Circle, only about a hundred yards away, which is a permanent reminder of when the National Ice Vod came to Flint in 1969, and indeed. It was near here that a police dog later located both of Janet's shoes, though there are no reports of her knickers being found. Traces of semen were also found to be present on the back of her jeans, that when examined, because it was suitable for analysis and was able to be tested, were found to belong to a secretor of blood group O. The crotch of her jeans was also heavily blood-stained though this was found to belong to a person of blood group B, which was Janet's blood group. Examining home office pathologist Dr Reuben Woodcock, who performed the post-mortem, noted that Janet's body was extremely cold and showed signs of advanced rigor mortis, and physical signs indicating she'd been left face down for some time after death, possibly some six to eight hours, Before being moved to where she was found, which was likely to have been within 12 hours of her death. Janet had bruising underneath the chin that was consistent with either a light blow or pressure, probably by hand, and had abrasions to the neck that, in his opinion, could have been caused by clothing held tightly in an act of asphyxia. The lack of severe injuries to her body suggested that she hadn't struggled violently with her killer. Though Janet had a split wound in her scalp that could have been caused by a blunt object such as a piece of wood or a bottle, either caused after her death or if before, which had been washed by heavy rain and which may have rendered her unconscious before the subsequent assault. In his opinion, Janet had been suffocated during a savage sexual assault. And savage isn't the word. Now, I won't go into graphic details here, but whilst researching the tale, as I said, I'm indebted to have been able to speak to a police officer with extensive knowledge of the case. And I'm told that having viewed the post mortem photographs from 1976, as well as reading in detail the pathology report from Dr. Woodcock, Janet's injuries to her intimate areas were extensive. She'd been both raped and sodomised, hence the heavy blood staining to the crotch of the jeans horrendous beyond belief isn't it whenever i research and write something like this when you're writing a paragraph such as the one that i've just read to you i can almost picture it myself even though it's the last thing i'd want to do janet's uncle derek urston was the family member who volunteered to go to the mortuary to identify Janet's body when she was found. By all accounts, Eileen and Ted were both quite understandably too stunned and shattered to do so. And he recalled, many years later, I would describe that as the worst experience of my life, seeing her lying there so vulnerable and lifeless. He added, that he'd not slept for a complete week afterwards as i'm sure you wouldn't do as the investigation got underway the town which was at the time a lot smaller than it is today and a more close-knit community went into shock because things like this you always imagine to happen elsewhere don't you they don't intrude in your corner of the world and done who at the time lived close to the spot where Janet's body was discovered, remembers the town, in her words, swarming with policemen, and said years later, It was quite upsetting. There was a lot of fear around at the time. People were frightened that it would happen again. Local councillor Alex Aldridge agreed with her, recalling, It had a profound and devastating effect on Flint. It was an extraordinary feeling. I had a daughter who was just under two at the time. And to think a young girl had befallen this awful fate, being robbed of her life. Well, it's something you'll never forget. It's still raw and it's still hurtful. Journalist Paul Mewies, who covered the story at the time, said that it made headlines across the UK, describing I can remember how not just the town of Flint But a much wider area was shocked by this awful case. The fact that a schoolgirl was killed on a playing field. It stuck in my mind. I've reported on a number of tragedies over my career. But this one does stand out still. The manhunt mounted by North Wales police was huge. With the Flint division drafting in about 120 officers from force wide. And the regional crime squad to scour the Flint area and to conduct the extensive house-to-house inquiries. By five days after Janet's body was discovered, more than 4,000 people had been spoken to, 1,500 plus calls had been taken by the incident room, roadblocks had been set in place on the coast roads leading out of Flint, as well as on the A55, with drivers being questioned, and in some cases, the vehicles searched. And all local men from the Flint area aged between 17 and 22 years of age were specifically asked to account for their movements on the evening of the murder. There was an early television appeal made to try to prick the conscience of Janet's killer and her mother Eileen even bravely participated in a reconstruction retracing Janet's last known steps that fateful Wednesday evening based on the sightings that I detailed earlier eileen told the daily post newspaper we live for the day janet's killer is found and just hope that everyone who can help will give all the information they can to the police she was a nice quiet girl who would not harm anyone why my daughter's been killed i will never understand but for the sake of other children the man responsible must be found I would appeal for people to think what their neighbours, friends and relatives were doing on the night of the attack and if they have any suspicions, please pass them on to the police. As I'm always struck with statements like this, the poor woman, you just can't imagine how difficult and painful to do something like that must be until you're thrust into that nightmare yourself, can you? Now the murder was tentatively linked to a reported attempted sex attack in the village of Pennaford, about six or seven miles from Flint on the same evening as Janet's body was found when at 7.30pm that Sunday a nurse was reportedly indecently assaulted by the former Meadows Lee Hospital on Wrexham Road in the village by an attacker of about 18 years of age who was wearing a woolen coat. He'd grabbed her and dragged her some yards down the road though she'd ultimately kicked her attacker in the groin and he had then run off. This incident was, however, soon ruled out of having any connection with Janet's murder. Other potential lines of inquiry that were established but ultimately ruled out included appeals for a Cortina or Vauxhall car that was seen in the area on the evening of the murder. Containing three youths aged about eighteen to nineteen, who had seen and had asked some boys playing football under the streetlights in Albert Avenue directions to a local garage before driving off, and an appeal for a white car. It's unclear if it's the same vehicle being discussed here that was seen in suspicious circumstances on the main North Wales Coast Road at Oakenholt, a village on the southeast outskirts of Flint, as the occupant or occupants of it, were seen to drop an unidentified object on a grass verge near here, only to return and retrieve it some nights later. Now it's not reported if either vehicle was ever traced, however, both I've described were shortly to be eliminated as lines of inquiry from the investigation. About 10,000 people were ultimately quizzed by police during that investigation in the January of 1976 and every angle that could have been thought of was looked at, from, as I say, stopping random drivers at roadblocks on the North Wales coast roads, to speaking to the 50 men who had attended the Flint Borough Workmen's Club on the night of the murder, as the French horror film Lips of Blood and another entitled Erotic Witchcraft had been shown there that evening, and police seriously considered that a viewer watching these, films which were described as sexy but not porn had left there after watching them in such a state of arousal that he had acting on irresistible urges sexually attacked the first woman he'd come across which was perhaps janet it was a fair theory but again all who had viewed the films and which i can imagine were as entertaining as they sound because they sound utter cack don't they all were one by one ruled out of the inquiry, and in fact, soon, all police had to show for their efforts. And I'm not saying it was through a lack of knocking on doors at all here, either. But all they had was the certainty that Janet had died on the Wednesday evening. They weren't even certain as to whether it was one or two killers they were hunting, or a case of murder or manslaughter that they were dealing with. A senior officer involved in the investigation. Detective Chief Inspector Bob Otter was quoted as saying to a press conference held on the 15th of January, We are not absolutely certain whether the assailant intended to kill the girl. In this respect, I would say this if the assailant or assailants have any explanation or any version of the incident that they wish to put forward, then obviously it will be far better to come forward and volunteer it now than to put it forward after. We have traced them. By the 24th of January, a £500 reward for information leading to the arrest of Janet's killer had been offered. And just three days later, a somewhat chilling development in the case was reported. On the 27th of January, it was reported that two pupils at Flint High School, two girls, although it's unclear as to whether they were friends of Janet's, or were even in the same year as her. But it was reported that two girls had received five anonymous handwritten letters between them, requesting them to meet with the author, or authors, on certain nights, and given arrangements for a certain spot for them to do so. The exact contents of these letters have never been released, but at least one, or a portion of it, was reprinted in the Daily Post newspaper. It contains the wording you are next which looks as though each word has been clipped from a separate newspaper text as in the archetypal ransom note that you used to see in films you know. And aside from a crude drawing of a cross in the top right hand corner the only portion of text reproduced in the newspaper reads don't forget and forget is spelt as the two separate words for and get you are next like it said in the other letter underneath this were the letters b a f one of these letters has also been delivered before the discovery of janet's body head of the murder inquiry detective chief superintendent eric evans told the press that they didn't know whether the handwriting was disguised but due to the lack of punctuation and the misspelling of a simple word such as forget, it did appear like a child's writing. He reported that officers also believed the letters may have been the work of two people, as certain elements in the five letters made them think that more than one person could be involved, though he didn't release what that was, but stressed that the handwriting in all the letters was similar, saying it's an extra complication which we have to examine. Senior Officer Detective Chief Inspector Frank Bass added, the notes have particularly frightened one of the girls involved. Indeed, it had frightened one of the girls so much that she'd been kept off school following receiving them, and on the nights in question alluded to in the letters, police had watched both the suggested meeting place and both of the girls houses throughout the night now flint high school cooperated fully with police here and every pupil attending there had their handwriting tested under the supervision of officers to compare against the handwriting in the notes though it's not reported if the culprit or culprits were ever identified or not the letters were later established to be a malicious hoax the kind of thing that happens more than you'd realise in high-profile investigations. The primest example I can give there are the hoax Ripper letters and tape that arguably kept Sutcliffe at large for a couple more years. Now as a slight off-topic anecdote there, my mum told me that at the height of the Yorkshire Ripper being at large, she received a telephone call late one evening from a man who said he was the Ripper and who wanted to meet her in mould a town that's very near to flint thinking it was my dad messing about she told him so at the very second that my dad walked through the door the call was later traced to a phone box in mold somewhere but it frightened my mum terribly at the time as it would have done it's just an example of a macabre and cruel form of amusement to certain warped people which many are what can i say who get a kick out of frightening people but other people out of several reasons perhaps attention seeking perhaps mental illness will actually even confess to crimes they haven't committed just for that bit of excitement and for them to be the center of attention for a day or two with all eyes on them and sometimes that backfires upon them Two days after the threatening letters were reported in the newspapers, on the afternoon of the twenty ninth of january, two carloads of police officers swooped upon the car park of the Hope and Anchor Pub on Eulow Place in the town of Buckley and arrested as he was leaving an eighteen year old traveller named Noel Jones from Coyd Poeth in Wrexham, in connection with the murder of Janet Commons. Jones had been spoken to initially by police on the Sunday evening that Janet's body had been discovered as part of routine inquiries as he was at the time living in a caravan in a lay-by between Flint and the nearby village of Northup and was spoken to there by officers however he had denied any knowledge of the crime and as he was just one of the thousands of young males who were spoken to in those initial days of the inquiry With nothing to elevate him to a serious suspect in the crime, no further action was taken. Not then, anyway. And then two and a half weeks later, a girl named Linda Eyeball came forward to police with a remarkable story. Linda Eyeball, then 15 years of age and who then lived in Buckley, was engaged to the same Noel Jones, the traveller from Code Poeth, They'd known each other for two or three years as he was related to a neighbour of hers and they'd gotten engaged less than three weeks before just two days after Janet's murder it so happens. And she'd approached police off the back of the continued press coverage of the hunt for Janet's killer to recount that on the evening of Saturday the 17th of January she'd been with Jones and he'd appeared upset or distracted even uncharacteristically sitting on her knee. When she'd asked him what was the matter with him, he'd said to her, reportedly tearfully, You know the girl in Flint that got murdered? I did it. I've been fancying her for some time. The devil came to me. He had then asked her to provide him with an alibi for the evening in question. Now, Linda did not believe him one bit and told him so, recalling that when she rebuked him and when he was telling her the account, he was kind of staring off in a vacant kind of look as though he was talking to the wall as though he was trying out for a false story she later described he had then asked her what she thought he needed an alibi for and why she thought his friend michael orford a fellow traveler had gone back to liverpool now the following day when she was in a van with jones his mother and his brother He had told her that he'd only been joking with what he'd said the previous evening. But this had played on her mind. She was certain still that he'd made the whole account up. But who does that? And for what? Until she'd decided to approach the incident room to report this conversation because she thought Noel Jones needed help. Because it was the second time he'd featured in the inquiry, with the lack of any other suspects, Jones was arrested then as he left the Hope and Anchor Pub on the twenty ninth of January and was taken to Flint Police Station. Now, there are two things I should point out here before progressing further through the account, which is that firstly, at that time, then eighteen year old Noel Jones was barely literate, struggling to write or even read the most basic of things, secondly detention and interview procedures back in 1976 were a lot different than they are today as the introduction of the police and criminal evidence act in 1984 codified things like meal breaks breaks in interview informing the suspect of their right to have a solicitor present, that kind of thing bear those in mind when jones was told what linda had told police and with Detective Inspector Albert Roberts telling him that he thought he wasn't joking when he told her about Janet, saying, She's very concerned about you in this matter. She said she told us about it because you should receive all the help possible. That shows that she took you seriously, doesn't it? Jones had reportedly replied, Yes, and had then buried his head in his hands. He was further reported to have said, when told that he would be required to provide forensic samples for examination. You carry out your examinations. I am guilty, but you'll have to prove it. Further, Detective Constable Barry Fielding of the Regional Crime Squad said that when he and a sergeant had interviewed Jones as part of his questioning, Jones had asked him what he would get if he told them the truth, meaning how long would he have to serve in prison. He was then asked by D.C. Fielding if he'd killed Janet Commons and reportedly replied Yes, but I didn't know her name until I saw the papers. In fact, within hours of his arrest Noel Jones was given accounts yes, plural that would have the most devastating effects upon his life for the next four decades for after being questioned and he reportedly was for two days without a solicitor present he signed two detailed confession statements admitting to the murder of janet cummins in one of these signed statements confessing to the killing jones had signed words to the effect that at the time he was living in his caravan between northup and flint and had often seen janet whilst he was down in flint searching for scrap metal as she walked with friends near the high school at lunchtimes. He had admitted he felt attracted to her, her appearing to him to be the type of girl he could get things off his mind to, but though never got the chance to talk to her, as she was never alone. On the evening of Wednesday the 7th of January, he'd been with his girlfriend, Linda Eyeball, at a home in Eulow Place, where the pair had listened to music and had had sex, before Jones had decided to go back to his caravan at about 9pm Due to having a bad headache, he subsequently drove his blue transit pickup truck from here towards Flint and had seen Janet by chance on Coydon Road, where he had stopped and parked and had called out to her, causing her to run away. He had chased after her and had caught her near to the gorsed Circle stones, finding her crouching behind the centre stone, where he had then hit her, causing her to fall unconscious. He had then had sex with her and had grabbed her by the throat and shook her to rouse her to bring her out of unconsciousness. When this had failed, he had carried and dragged Janet further up the hill before pushing her over a fence and into a hedge and had returned back to his caravan and burned his clothing. He then took police on a tour of his movements as he'd just described and pointed out the spot where he'd confessed to leaving Janet which was reportedly fairly accurate. However, the following day, Jones gave a differing account of the night of the murder, which begins as follows. I want to tell you that what I've said in my first statement isn't all the truth. Part of it is true, but I didn't tell you about Michael, because he's married and I wanted to protect him. When I left my girlfriend Linda at about nine o'clock, I picked up Mike Orford at the trap and we drove back to the caravans at the cut. I had a headache and went into my caravan for a sit down for a few minutes. I was thinking of going for a ride and then Michael came to the trailer. I told him I had a headache and was thinking of going for a drive and he said, I'll come if you want. So we went for a drive in my van. We headed for Flint. Mike brought up the subject of girls. Mike said, would you go out with other girls besides linda i said we're not all like you i told him in the conversation about girls that i'd seen a girl by the school in flint a few times but that wasn't really true now frustratingly that's where the snippet portion of jones's second account that has been publicly released ends reportedly he claimed in this second account similar bits to the first but now said that both he and michael orford a fellow traveler had chased and caught janet orford had held her arms whilst jones had had sex with her and then jones had held her whilst orford committed a sexual offense against her both had thought janet was dead at that point so they then carried her over a fence and laid her down Now incidentally it was in reference to a question posed to Jones managing to get Janet over this fence by himself and it being difficult to that this second account had come about as when he'd been asked if he was sure he was alone he eventually admitted that he'd been with Mike. Jones continued that they both then lay down and claimed that both even dozed until almost dawn and then woke and carried Janet's body over to the bushes where she was found, concealing her with tree branches. They had then returned, and Jones had burned all of his clothing at the caravan, including one of Janet's shoes that he'd bundled up. Now, on the basis of these accounts alone, no eyewitnesses, no forensic evidence, bar solely Jones being of the same blood group as the killer, like a large percentage of the population was, and two accounts that differ massively in important parts, which I shall come on to discuss in shortly, on Friday the 30th of January 1976, at Flint Magistrates Court, Noel Jones, who gave his address as Assembly Road in Code Poeth, appeared charged with the murder of 15-year-old Janet Cummins. The following day, in a special sitting, 20-year-old Michael Francis Orford, of no fixed abode, and described as being an itinerant scrap dealer, appeared facing the same charges, with both being remanded into custody. Now, I can only imagine that North Wales Police were under such pressure to detect Janet's killer. No one wants a sex killer roaming around after all, do they? But when they got wind of a confession, Arrested the said person, and he then gave two accounts, both admitting to killing Janet, though vastly differing. Then they couldn't ignore that. However much the spy descents may be saying, hang on a minute, let's pick these accounts to bits. I haven't read either statement in full, of course, but even from the summary of both accounts I've brought, there are things that I see is wrong. Perhaps see better because I'm from the area. For a start. Flint is not a natural way to head home from Buckley. And there's also Jones' claim that he'd called out to Janet, causing her to run. But how could he, if he only knew a name from the newspapers? To say he'd burnt one of Janet's shoes, though both were found by a police dog only shortly after her body was discovered. Or why would Janet run into the darkness of the Gorsup Circle if he'd seen her on the road adjacent to her home? And then to change an account so drastically that two killers are now involved in rape and murder, that after killing someone, instead of fleeing, merely lay down and even slept near to the body outside for a number of hours on a bitterly cold January night, I wouldn't be happy laying a murder charge on the basis of solely that, would you? But as I said before, it was different times back then. But your spidey sense would be going. Way off the chart, wouldn't it? Two days after Jones and Orford had been charged, on Monday the 2nd of February, Janet's funeral service was held at St Mary's Flint Parish Church, ahead of her interment at Flint Borough Cemetery. The flags on Delin Borough Council offices in the Guildhall on Chapel Street were lowered to half mast. Some shops closed for business as a mark of respect and hundreds of people lined Church Street as her coffin made its way to the church. There were some 400-plus people there in attendance to say goodbye to the tragic teenager and pay respects at the service conducted by the Reverend E.A. Gray, including the then Mayor of Flint, Neville Meese, and then MP for Dellin, Barry Jones. And as Janet's shattered family looked stunned throughout, some 60 girls from Flint High School Formed part of the congregation, sobbed throughout as the headmaster, Clive Roberts, read the lesson and then delivered a touching eulogy to Janet. That following Friday, the 6th of February, Michael Orford appeared once again at the magistrate's court, watched by a crowd of some 50 people outside and the public benches packed inside. But the following Tuesday, the 10th of February, Orford was released on bail of £2,000 with two sureties of £2,500 each provided by two of his four brothers. There was to be no such bail for Noel Jones who reportedly, each time he saw his appointed counsel kept to the same account he had given secondly. It was even more surprising then or perhaps it harks back a bit to what I said a few minutes ago about how flimsy a murder charge was raised on the basis of an account with holes in it like a bloody colander but on the 23rd of March a representative from the Department of Public Prosecutions David Boyd requested that the charges against Michael Orford be withdrawn and the case against him dismissed on the basis of no evidence being offered against him this was duly actioned and Orford gave no comment following his release. On the 27th of April, Noel Jones was formally committed for trial at Mould Crown Court, though an application was made to switch the trial to Carnarvon Crown Court in the interests of a fair trial, based on the argument that it would be impossible to pick an impartial jury from the local area. Gareth Edwards, Jones's counsel, said, it would be impossible to draw from the Clwyd or Chester area a jury untainted by gossip or rumour about the circumstances of this case. My solicitors have heard on the streets a great deal of rumours that have gone about over this case. It received wide publicity at the time because the girl was missing before the body was discovered. Then there was a manhunt and a house-to-house inquiry lasting some two weeks and photographs in the newspapers of police officers interviewing school children and parents in the street. It's since that time, and since the arrest of the defendant, that rumours multiplied, and what we are concerned about is that the rumours say the murder was done by two gypsies, that they committed horrible atrocities upon the dead body, and that one of these gypsies had had to be released for lack of evidence. Alan Lee's KC, prosecuting, didn't oppose the application, but merely pointed out that newspapers covering the manhunt circulated extensively in the Carnarvon and Deeside areas also. Presiding, Mr Justice Wayne said that nothing he'd heard or read in court would make him order that the trial should not be held in mould, and so duly denied the request. Therefore, on Monday the 14th of June 1976, Noel Jones appeared at Mould Crown Court before presiding Mr Justice Cantley to face trial for the murder of Janet Cummins to which he issued a plea of not guilty. Opening the case for the Crown Roger Titheridge Casey outlined to the court the details of the crime the investigation of Jones's arrest and subsequent statements that he'd signed including the second which named Michael Orford as a co-offender saying You are not going to be asked to judge Orford. He is not on trial at this court. That does not mean he will never be on trial. Linda Eyeball and several officers involved in the investigation then gave evidence, after Home Office pathologist Dr Cyril Woodcock had given evidence of his post-mortem examination, and had told the court how considerable violence had been used in the sexual attack upon Janet leading to death possibly coming from vagal stimulation, pressure on the nerves running down each side of the neck, though we agreed that a lay person may not have any idea that applying pressure on such a fatal spot could kill or even cause harm. Now this statement seemed to direct the trial, for the following day the not guilty to murder plea was removed and was replaced with a guilty to manslaughter plea following legal submissions by jones's counsel christopher Bedenfield casey who submitted that based upon the statements jones had made there was no evidence given to show jones had at any stage an intention of killing janet mr justice cantley then duly instructed the jury to find jones guilty of manslaughter and deferred sentencing for the following day when he told jones as he sentenced him to 12 years imprisonment. This child, she was only 15, was killed unintentionally by you and this other man by violence in the course of a bestial sexual attack, which involved violent, brutal rape and buggery. You hunted this girl down, and you never showed at any time, up to the moment of her death, any pity at all. Claiming the two had treated her Simply as an animal, Mr. Justice Cantley went on. You are only 18, but this is a case which, in my view, deserves serious punishment. It has to be made clear to many of your age, because a lot of violence and a lot of this kind of thing happens among men of your age, that anyone convicted of this sort of offence will be severely punished. Jones was then taken away to begin his sentence. Following the verdict, Janet's father Ted said, Janet was our only child. I'm horrified at the sentence. He could be free at 26 with good behaviour. Yes, it would slap you in the face somewhat that, wouldn't it? Because during the trial it was heard that Jones had made statements admitting attacking Janet in company with another man, who he named as Michael Orford, though reportedly had not given detectives enough information they needed about this other man involved to ensure that charges that were brought against him would stick, as we've seen, North Wales Police said that Janet's case was still open and that any fresh leads would be followed up, for they too believed another man was also equally as responsible. Now in a somewhat confused line of inquiry, Police also stated they now believe that Janet was with two or three other girls near the high school in Northup Road at about 10.30pm before she'd left them and walked off over the high school playing fields. And though they reportedly interviewed another six girls over the one year anniversary of Janet's murder, this came to nothing. Indeed, it seemed to me a token being seen to be doing something. The case being one of these that are effectively shelved, but because no murder investigation can ever be marked as unsolved, case closed, was instead labelled active with regular reviews, which is the next best thing really, isn't it? Janet's family too was somewhat critical of the investigation. I'll expand on that more in the second part. And still believe that another person had escaped justice. By a year later, Eileen had still been unable to return to work and a year after Janet's murder told the Daily Post newspaper We still harbour feelings of revenge against whoever robbed us of our only child. The past year has been a nightmare and Christmas was terrible without her. It is impossible to explain how much we miss her but sometimes I get the feeling that we're just existing from day to day with no purpose in mind Noel Jones served 5 years and 9 months of his 12 year sentence and was released in April 1982 from HMP Liverpool after having spent most of his sentence in segregation there for his own safety after being imprisoned as the sex killer of a young woman following his release he changed his name and moved to the West Midlands. Ted and Eileen Cummings were distraught over his early release, and told the Daily Post how they would never get over the death of their only daughter, saying, He's only in his twenties, and now has the rest of his life to look forward to. He killed an innocent girl he didn't even know, and in the process, ruined our lives. We live our lives from day to day, and haven't got anything to look forward to janet would have been 21 this year but all we have are memories now sadly janet's death did break the health of ted and eileen but particularly ted a large powerful man more than one person recounts how following her death he went almost to a shell of himself changed irretrievably by the loss of his daughter and found that his way of coping with the loss was to never talk about Janet or display any pictures of her, it simply remaining too raw a loss to be able to. In 2001, he had a debilitating stroke, and for the next 13 years remained bedridden, requiring residential care, unable to communicate, but visited every day by his dutiful wife Eileen, until he passed away in September 2014, aged 79. More than one person says that the loss of Janet contributed to this immensely. Now, what Ted could never have known when he was alive was that in August 2006, based on the significant forensic developments that had been made in the time since Janet's death, North Wales Police had carried out a cold case review, spearheaded by Senior Investigating Officer Detective Superintendent Yestin Davis, on samples which had been taken from Janet's body in 1976, and stored for three decades which had now been located in storage, and took a fresh look at the semen sample that had been removed from Janet's genes, from which a full DNA profile of a killer could now be raised, and successfully was. Looking back over the case file from the time, it was thought that this DNA profiling could possibly point them to Michael Orford the man charged alongside Noel Jones of sexually assaulting and murdering Janet, but who the charges against had been dropped back in 1976 due to a lack of evidence. It was given to forensic DNA expert Dr Jonathan Whittaker, based in a laboratory in Birmingham, to examine, who began interpreting the results immediately, with strict measures in place to prevent contamination while the DNA profiling was carried out, and requested that a second independent scientist also looked at the results, with the two conclusions corroborating exactly. It led to officers executing search warrants on two addresses in the Flint area on September the 5th of that year, and though Orford has never been specifically named as being re-arrested in connection with the murder of Janet Cummins. If the purpose of raising the profile was to eliminate him from the inquiry once and for all conclusively, you have to think he would have been. And guess what? The male DNA profile that had been raised from the semen sample removed from Janet's genes was not a match for Michael Orford. And it wasn't a match for Noel Jones either. This was double, triple checked. But whoever had left that seaman, ergo Janet's killer, was neither of these two men, not even the one who had pleaded guilty to a manslaughter and served almost six years for. Oh yes, can you see why this is a two-part tale now? The information was shared with the police and the sample was loaded onto the National DNA Database, though in 2006, There were no matches. It was to be almost a further 10 years before in September 2016, North Wales Police got the call they'd been waiting for, that the National DNA Database had finally thrown up a hit, and they had a match to Janet's killer. Which I shall tell you all about in the second part of the 40-year secret, as that has just fallen a perfect place to leave it. For this time around it is a tragic story on so many levels this one one that i've been thinking of covering for a long time now at least a few series worth and for janet and for so many who remember and were affected by a her murder hers is a tale that i wanted to do absolute justice to so it isn't scrimped on it's planned and written exactly as i have done and as i said at the start I shall bring my own thoughts and feedback upon the tale as a whole at its completion, which I'm now nipping off to put together, and which I shall be back with you for soonest. All that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining me in the MOG today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, stay safe,